folks, it's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Steve Williamson here, uh, Karen McClellan sitting across from me. Uh, we've got a really uh, great guest on the show. He's been on the show many times before. I don't know if many quite fits it, but he's been on at least th- uh, three, four times. And we'll be talking about, I think, a topic that's that's really relevant. Before we do that, this is sort of like NPR and you know, and when they're asking for money, we, uh, the show is in some, some economic difficulties. We've been on the air now in April. It will be 11 years, but we really need your support. We lost our, uh, a couple of our big supporters last year and, um, we would really use your support. And the best way or the easiest way to do it, you can write us and so forth and so on is to go on our website, not the Facebook page, but the website has a little button that you can press on and, and being Democrats is a tiny little button you can barely see instead of a big button. I want a button where it covers the whole page and won't let you see anything until you donate money. But but right now we have a little button that if you look on the right-hand side, we can really appreciate your donations. It doesn't matter how small they are. And we appreciate them, particularly if they're they're monthly donations. So having gotten that out of the way, um, I'd like to introduce our guest today. Oh, we should say about something about our donors, uh, Karen. First, I'd like to thank El Portal. Um, it's a great um, boutique hotel in wonderful design. Uh, every room is different. It, it's a really exciting place to stay. We'd like to thank the, uh, thank the um, Yavapai County Democrats um, across the hill over in Prescott's where they, their, their uh, offices are. And they've been really supportive, and we appreciate that. Um, and then we have Door. And Karen, what's Door up to these days? Well, the Democrats of Red Rocks, um, we just had an annual meeting last week with an interesting talk from the executive director of the Democratic Party in Arizona. You know, we're, and we're just getting ready to sort of really ramp up things for this coming election. Because in, in Arizona, you know, every legislative seat is up for election this year. Every statewide office, governor, corporation commission, secretary of state, all of those offices are up for re-election. And we have, it sort of will go into what we'll be talking about later in the program, we have a lot of very extreme Republicans (laughs) running for some of those seats. We have someone running for secretary of state who thinks the last election was stolen and that Trump really won. So we have a lot of extreme Republicans that have popped out of the woodwork that are running this year. So we talked we talked about those issues and we've talked a lot. You know, our state Democratic Party held a meeting last week and we talked a lot there just as the year everybody needs to get organized, needs to get out, talk to your friends, you know, get involved with somebody's campaign, with one of the the, the party. You know, we need people to go knock on doors when people start to feel like that, hopefully as the spring goes on, but to make phone calls and just talk to your friends about how important it is to get out and find out who's running and vote in Arizona this fall. Yeah, I, I missed the uh, the meeting, even though it was on Zoom, because I had an exciting visit to the dermatologist. I think I would have rather much rather gone to the meeting. Um, 
We'd really like to thank Door. The best place to see what Door is up to is go to their website. Mm-hmm. Our guest today is Dan Single, and Dan is a was a professor. He's retired now at uh, Hobart and Smith College. Uh, I think it's in Rochester, New York. He's been on the show many times, and today we're talking about the paranoid style, really, in in American politics. Dan, are you with us? Yes, I am. All right. So. When I, we talked before the show, one of your points is that Trumpism, this extreme craziness that we see so dominant in the Republican Party, particularly now, is not just a new phenomenon. It's something that's reoccurred throughout American history, this sort of conspiratorial view of uh, of things. So why don't you lay out uh, uh, the past for us a bit and give people a bit of the history of of these kind of uh, movements. Sure. This all comes from my old mentor in graduate school, a very brilliant historian named Richard Hofstadter. Uh, Many people say he's the best historian uh, that the United States has ever produced. And uh, he did uh, publish a book entitled The Paranoid Style in American Politics back in the mid-1960s in relation to uh, a campaign, presidential campaign, by a senator from your state, Barry Goldwater. Uh (laughs) But uh, I I won't say anything more about the connection to Arizona, however. Uh, (laughs) In any event... uh, Uh, He pointed out that this is a phenomenon that you see in American politics, this notion of uh, uh, of rural folks, people in small towns especially, uh, imagining that there's some grand conspiracy afoot uh, that is out there trying to destroy them and that they in turn must destroy. Uh, And you can trace it back to the 1840s uh, when there was an enormous uh, uproar over uh, Catholic immigrants arriving in the country. There was a belief that they were uh, sent by the Pope and that it was part of a conspiracy to take American politics away from Protestants and put it under the control of the Vatican. That was the conspiracy they imagined. Uh, Dan, uh, you know, yeah. that that view was alive when when I was young in Oklahoma. Um, the, uh, the one of the Baptist church split on uh, forcing everyone to sign a statement that they wouldn't support John Kennedy, apparently, because uh, they believed that he would take orders directly from the pope. So that we, so that, that resonates from the 1840s until the 1960s. And I noticed that there isn't a, a Catholic president of the United States for almost 200 years after the country's founded. So these things don't completely die out. I, I'm not uh, there now, so I don't know all. the situation. That's, that's Hofstetter's point. And the other thing that's very important to remember is that where were the Catholics? according to this conspiratorial vision, they were in the cities. Yes. They were gathered together in the cities. So it was an anti-urban uh, <clears throat> uh, political movement as much as anything. Then it pops up again, that's a pun, 
in the 1890s with, of course, the populists, farmers and people living in farming communities who believe that something called the Gold Trust, uh, made up of the major uh, financiers of the country, were trying to uh, squeeze them by contracting the currency and making it impossible for them to get capital. So they uh, they actually uh, ran their own presidential candidate uh, and then uh, uh, turned ultimately to William Jennings Bryan. But uh, you look at uh, populism and you can see a lot of clues. Uh, we, we can get into this about Trumpism. Uh, then at, uh, the mid- in the 1920s, the anti-Catholicism, and now it becomes joined with racism, rises again uh, in the form of fundamentalist religion and the Ku Klux Klan. There's a big reactionary upsurge in the 1920s. It results, among other things, in prohibition, which is actually aimed at Catholics in many ways but it's particularly aimed at city dwellers and uh, stopping the corruption that emerges in cities from uh, spreading to the countryside and destroying them. Uh, You see it in uh, McCarthyism in the 50s and then especially in the Goldwater campaign in the 60s. So Hofstadter points out that we have this tradition of rural extremist politics in our country. He also uh, takes care to compare it to other countries and argues that uh, it is fairly unique to the United States and that if we follow out that insight, we can learn a lot about what really uh, makes it up, what the dynamics are, and maybe get a better sense of how to stop it. One thing I'd like to do, Steve, is just read you a little quote from Hofstadter. I know reading quotes on the air is... No, go ahead, Dan. We're we're a strange radio program here. Uh, We've (laughs) done a program on the (laughs) translation of the the Rubiat, so we can have some quotes. Well, the thing is, I think this is all... It just is so startling that he was writing this in the 1960s, but does it ever pertain to the world we're living in in the year 2022... Uh, some uh, 70 years later. He uh, wrote that if you wanted to understand the Goldwater movement, you should not look particularly at economics. Uh, Goldwater's followers were somewhat concerned about economic issues, but that really wasn't what mattered to them the most. Uh, uh, Rather, he said, and I quote him, The Goldwater movement is a revolt against the whole modern condition as the old-fashioned American sees it, against the world of organization and bureaucracy, the welfare state, our urban disorders, secularism, and the emergence of unwelcome international burdens. And listen to this. Their basic feeling is a hatred of what America has become and a fierce and uncompromising insistence that it be made into what they think it once was, 
make America great again. Yeah, nothing's changed in, in certainly in that. Why don't you read that one again, uh, uh, Well, let me, let me actually read a few. Uh, <laughs> I'll read that again and then the next two sentences because they're also relevant to, I think, our discussion. Again, their basic feeling, that is the... Uh, the rural conser- so-called conservatives who made up the Goldwater movement is a hatred of what America has become and a fierce and uncompromising insistence that it be made uh, into what they think it once was. The word conservatism is precious to them because it conceals the wild utopianism that emerges out of their nostalgia. That's a great sentence. It involves, quote, an anger over the loss of what what once seemed an almost magical capacity to have their way in the world. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, I think that's... Trumpism? I think that's exactly the process we're seeing again. And, Let uh, me read you his final sentence sure. of, uh, of all. When in all our history has anyone with ideas so bizarre, so archaic, so self-confounding, so remote from the basic American consensus ever gone so far... Well, <laughs> well yeah. we got to see uh, an example who went even further, didn't we? We did. We it, it's as if Goldwater had had uh, won. Of course, there you know, in, in talking about populism, one thing that disturbed me when I was reading a little bit of uh, of uh, Hofstadler's uh, uh, thinking is that. You know, I was very much influenced by reading Frank Norris and uh, The Octopus and the situation coming from Oklahoma that rural farmers were in. They were in an extremely difficult situation where it seemed to them that the whole economy was in the control of somebody other than them. And because they didn't have a lot of knowledge, you know, little towns were barely connected by railroads and some streets and roads were hard to get places. They really came up with their kind of own theories, which were, were really, in some cases, quite bad. But the, but the thing was that they were under real economic pressure. They think they believed things were out of control. They weren't getting paid for their crops and so forth and so on. I. You, what were the what was driving the Goldwater people seems more pure version of this than than populism, which had a, 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 a had real economic grievances. Or Hofstadter would completely agree with you. In fact, I'm currently writing a book that's going to include a couple of chapters on him. So I've been reading uh, a ton of his correspondence. And one of the things he keeps saying in his letters to friends and so on uh, is that, you know, I'm being uh, mistaken. I really like the populists. I sympathize with them. I care about them. But, he says, we also have to realize that they uh, went way too far. They, They got into what he calls illiberalism. Uh, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in populism. Uh, there was a great deal, in particular, of nativism. 
the sphere of people who are different than they were and who lived at some distance from them. And uh, when they looked out and saw those people, they assumed those people were their enemy, <clears throat> which, of course, was a mistake. And which, of course, is what we're seeing today. And I reread the one uh, sor- shorter essay published, I guess, uh, some of the ideas of Hofstetter's and reading that and talking and thinking about what was going on in other parts of the world You know, when he was writing, what's going on in other parts of the world today, what makes it particularly American. And there seemed to be a lot of these groups have this sort of apocalyptic viewpoint that comes yes. to my mind from Christian, uh, Protestant Christians who read Revelations and are so concerned you know, the world is coming to an end. You know, that we're approaching the second coming, we're approaching something like that. And that doesn't seem, it seems to me that thinking about it, that's more common in some of these American viewpoints than than people who are saying some of the same things other parts of the world, that this idea that you know, we're reaching a precipice and if we don't do something today, the whole world is going to disappear. It seems to be a, a very American part of some of these extreme viewpoints, you know, that, that factor into the anti-Semitism, anti-Catholicism, which are, are not new movements and are not ideas that were only you know found in America. What's driving this, Dan, in in, in Ostadler, but in in your opinion? Because um, I understand. You know, if you're a a white male like I am of a certain age, you were rose, you were raised rose in in an environment where uh, white males were everything, and uh, uh, all our professors practically there was occasionally a woman, there was occasionally someone was African American or something, but but it was almost entirely white men doing all the control of society. And now if you look at the Biden cabinet, it's really, you know, the number of white males has really dropped. And so they're now it's a fairly small minority. I guess if you if you really identify with just being male and just being white, it does look like you're being replaced by women and minorities in all these positions. If you go to the campuses, they're now multi multiracial, mostly ethnic, the women must be 50% of the, the faculty as they are, are 50% plus of the population. So I, I understand that they're seeing what they think is real changes. Okay, but why, why is their identification so narrow? To, to that's, a, that's an absolutely key question, and Hofstadter addressed it. You asked for my opinion. Well, actually, I would agree with him in this, and I can lay out his explanation. Uh, but what, what you have to keep in mind is that he was writing all this before the diversification that you just described had taken place. You're yeah. ta- you were talking about your childhood, Steve. Yeah. That's when he was writing, and uh, you didn't have... Uh, say, university faculties that were diversified. You didn't have very many women serving in Congress. In fact, almost none. So he saw this movement in those terms, but at a time when what we're focused on hadn't yet come into being. Uh, His point was that we have a very strange, unusual, in some ways it's a very positive, social system in this country 
where we have, we believe we have fluid class lines. Now, that may or may not be true. There may or may not be more social mobility here than in other places, but we believe it's true. It's been part of the uh, American belief system really from the start of the country. And what we tend to focus on instead of class, the class is important, but what social class is this, uh, but what we tend to focus on is ethnicity. And we always have. And that's what you saw as early as the 1840s with those Protestants who were objecting to Irish immigrants. Um, ethnic uh, uh, diversity is something that has been part of the fabric of American life, you know, going back at least 200 years. But that's precisely what makes these people uh, so uneasy. Uh, they live in communities where there isn't much diversity, <clears throat> where by and large most everyone is white and Protestant. And as a result, they don't think in, in terms of ethnic uh, uh, pluralism the same way that people who live in American cities do. Uh, people living in cities have to get used to pluralism because it's the environment they live in. They have no choice. Um, but people living in the countryside aren't very adept at diversity and pluralism. And so, uh, as a result, when they see uh, these other groups starting to make gains, they assume that they are threatened. They immediately come to believe that they are going to be replaced, but in particular, and this is how Hofstadter phrased it, that they're going to lose their status. Yes. That they're, yeah. the prestige they believe they've always had as uh, white, as Protestant, as Christians... And uh, in the case of, uh, say, the populist movement, and, and it continues on, as farmers, that this prestige that they once enjoyed, they were once thought of as the very heart of the country. They were what made America distinctive. And what they're convinced of is what they become, what they become convinced of is that that status is in jeopardy as a result of these diverse groups in the cities who are becoming more prestigious and more powerful than they are. And that if they don't act to restore the country that used to exist, at least in their, their mythical memory, uh, that they're going to find themselves uh, disrespected and uh, essentially uh, uh, cast by the wayside in their own country. So, for example, they're, they're fearful of, say, black folks and Asians because they live in communities where there aren't any and, and, and Hispanic folks. 
And they've never had any friends. They've never had an African-American friend. They've never gone to with their Chinese friend to celebrate Chinese New Year. They've never been involved in the positive side of multiculturalism. They haven't, you know, gone to an Arab restaurant for falafel or whatever. They haven't experienced the positive side of multiculturalism, and they haven't had any depth experience. So you're saying they're, because they're isolated in the same same to some extent, same religion, although there's now 14,000 Protestant denominations right. in the United States, yeah. which yeah. just raises Catholic looks weird. But, um, um, yeah, and, and I, I mean, I do understand that the, the country was founded um, by Anglo-Saxon Protestant men, right? That, and that's the found, who the founders were. It's more were. than that, though, Steve. It's more than the fact that they just don't have any friends. Yeah, I know. It's this this belief that, it, you know, if you go back in time to uh, the moment when the United States was really what, you know, the country was all about, uh, that they were uh, predominant. They were in control. Uh, Hofstadter, in, in regard to populism, speaks of something called the myth of the yeoman farmer. Uh which was, and this is very important to understand how mythical this is. Uh, are you still there? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're still yeah. here, and, well, and the, the yeoman event, farmer was uh, a... The yeoman farmer believed, or it was believed that they were yeoman farmers, which is to say that they were not part of capitalism. They were just growing crops independently. Uh, to help feed themselves and their neighbors. They were close to the soil. They were virtuous. Uh, they were connected to nature. Uh, and they were superior, in, and as a result, they were, at that time, they believed, the model what all, for what all other Americans should be. Mm. That was the key, this is the key point. And, and then, and that they move still ahead, seems to be a, the 1890s. Yeah. They find that they are in, in the control of forces outside their communities that have no respect for them, that have reduced them, as they see it, to uh, political and economic servitude. And that still seems so, to re resonate with that, even you know the the individualist who does it all for himself sort of idea of not you know strictly yeah. the, so much. You know, with the agricultural sort of thing, but that same sort of idea that other people are, you know, are taking away my personal liberty. Just. And that I, here's yeah. the other key point, though, Karen, and that I deserve, not just my liberty, I deserve to be the one who sets the, the tone. I'm the one who deserves the prestige. I'm the one who, sh and I and people like me are the ones who should be in control. But we're not. We've lost that. And now, well, we have this magical figure named Donald Trump who comes along with his MAGA hat and tells us he's going to restore us to that preeminence. He's going to put us back where we are convinced we belong. And that's that's the whole thing. So make America great again is really make certain people great again in control of the country. Because they were once in control, 
and because they are the source of American virtue. Yeah. They have all the things that are good about the country in them. They're the model of what everyone should be. No. And now no one recognizes that. No one looks at them that way. And that's the problem. And here comes Trump. You know, they're, they're in what uh, we refer to as the flyover districts, which is the uh, areas that people fly over in their jet planes but never land in. Well, Trump takes his jet plane and he lands in their community. He even comes down and swoops around with Air Force One. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, uh, right above the rally to show them. He's not flying over them. He's going to fly right to them and uh, and basically put them back at the center of attention and ultimately power. I think that what, what I hear you, you saying, I think the worst thing is that is the is the belief because I come from a part of the country where yeoman farmers, ex yeoman farmers, um, in this case, uh, uh, Protestant Irish and and Scottish uh, folks came into the country, and so that. Uh, they came from a really terrible situation in the homeland. You know, the, in Scotland, the rents were going up and they couldn't keep their land and the, the, uh, the lairds were taking everything. And then they come to the U.S. and they carve out a piece. And we have the stories. You know, they'll go to a, a wilderness area. They'll carve out a piece of land. One of my ancestors heard somebody else's axe and realized he had neighbors across the creek. <laughs> yes. so, yeah. So, but that, what, Disturbs me is that's true enough. I mean, uh, when well, I was except, going, except Hofstadter would correct you on one thing. He would say, "No, they weren't yeoman farmers. That's mythical." But from the start, they were involved in selling crops in the market. Of course, they were involved in land speculation. Quite a bit of it. They were constantly hoping to get rich by. Yep. <laughs> selling their land and moving to some other place and starting, you know, it was like flipping real estate. So they were very commercial in their outlook, and there's nothing wrong with that. In I fact, think that's true, they were very yeah. American in the fact that they were, you know, small capitalists. They all wanted to get rich, yeah. That's not how they see them, their, yeah. their ancestors. And, of course, we all, everybody sees their answers when, in reality, most of our ancestors were not farmers. Most of our ancestors worked in, you know, you know especially, you know, they came a bit later. They worked in factories. They but worked in factories. Back, they worked in the mines. They worked in things. They never, they always worked, you know, they, they, while we may think that our great-grandparents were these, you know, rugged individualists in reality. So, Karen, you're going back to a period of time when, you know, the majority of the population had to be farmers yeah. in order feed the country. But I'm saying, but the people today look back and they see that oh, as, yeah. as their, their, as their direct, when in reality, you know, for the hundred years yeah. of their grandparents, great-grandparents, great-grandparents, they were much more like you do been a factory worker than a farmer. Yeah. That's true I of make, some people, yes. The point is making and the point I'm making is that what the populists do is create the model <laughs> for what has come after them. In other words, this notion that you have a group of people in the small towns who may not be descended from farmers, but who look back mm -hmm. and say, you know, 
because we live in small-town America, we are uniquely virtuous. We represent what America should be. We should be in control. And these people in the cities, with their diversity, their liberalism, all the things that they bring, they're corrupting and uh, undermining our country because they are so different from us. As long as we're in control, as long as we set the standard, as long as we are the ones who get the high status, then everything will be fine. But if you turn it over to these other people, uh, they will just destroy everything. See, that's, that's the point I'm making. Not necessarily tied to farmers per se, but the sense that people who live in the countryside, who live in small towns, have a unique virtue and therefore deserve to have the power. And in, in the present case, uh, the uh, my brother went back to a small town in Oklahoma where we're originally from, and he found Trumpers everywhere. And he yep. joined Facebook, you know, was friend, and then um, the posts were so radically right-wing and stuff, he had to unfriend or secretly <laughs> unfriend people because he just couldn't bear all the Trump posts. So going back to my hometown, and i got to admit it's been a long time since I've been there, um, the whole area that, that, that in, in Oklahoma was conservative democratic is now is now all trump trump thing the the trump the idea of trump and his campaign has just sort of conquered rural america and and you think this is because it's the same process that created the pop let's take the economics aside because a lot of times these folks are are doing fine um you know, my ancestors are mostly yeoman farmers. They're mostly small farmers who moved across the country from place to place. Okay. But the belief system is, I think, what's disturbing. The idea that, you know, I can get rich and I'm still this special person because, you know, because I live in a small town. And the number of farmers is dropping precipitously. I, if I would go, to go back to Oklahoma, I think there's... Ten percent of the farmers when, that when I was born probably were, were, were working. There aren't a lot of small farmers or ranchers anymore. It's all big places. So it, it, it is a myth, and it's a myth that makes people feel good and special, right? That they're the sort of special people with the real America. Karen, you yeah. think? So? Yeah, that's the, the whole idea out here in the West, that, you know, the myth of the West and the, yeah, I said the farmer, the rancher, you know, who, who, you know, who was the law. You know, this whole sort of mythical idea and it, you know, that we sort of feel you know, that our ancestors, you know, created the country out of nothing, you know, and they created their own wealth out of nothing. And, you know, I think that is, you know, again, a somewhat of a, of a myth and the idea that, that everybody lived that way. And when, you know, other historians look at the people who were not on the frontier in 1840 were not even living that way. I mean, there there were cities in right, 1840, exactly. but it's it's, exactly. it's the same the same idea that you know, we came here and we were special people with a special country and manifest destiny and all kinds of things that that make Americans different than British people or Frenchmen right. or somebody else. You know. And that's what Trump is really selling. He's selling this notion that uh, you know. You, you people, you, my people, my followers, are the ones who have special virtue. 
who deserve to be in control. And the problem is, again, according to Hofstadter, with this kind of extremist politics, you're outside the normal political order. The normal political order, you're dealing with interests and issues that can be compromised, that can be dealt with by, you know, getting together and finding some kind of agreement that everyone uh, can subscribe to. But you can't with this kind of demand. There's no way to adjust for it. So what it does is lead to extremism, exactly the extremism that you were just describing your brother found on Facebook, right? Right. And it, I, go on, Dan. So that's the problem, that it can't be handled under normal political circumstances. And what you get is a cult. And it's interesting, you go back to Hofstadter, he's talking about the Goldwater campaign as a cult. And he writes at one point, and I think it's so striking, Goldwater's grip on his party is unusual. Normal candidates lead their party. He owns it. <laughs> Does that ever describe where we are? I mean, uh, you get this uh, incredible, because there's no way to solve the problem that they have, no way to give them, uh, you know, enough to satisfy them. You end up with their uh, tendency to invest all of their emotions in a central figure, a leader, who they believe will bring them to the promised land, but of course the promised land for them is in the utopian path. And it seems so much of this has, you, you add in to all of that an, an underlying or not even expressed viewpoint, you know, from, you know, uh, Protestant religious things that flowed across the country in the early 1800s and, you know, this very much of the idea of the end of the times and the savior and as an, you know, so you can't just have, you have a leader who's not just a leader, he's almost a religious figure, the way some yeah. people view Trump or viewed some of these other leaders that this, this Protestant ideology, you know, of, of somebody coming to fight the Antichrist. Yeah. Well, and that's that why. Comes in, according to Hofstadter, and I hear I agree with him, that really comes in. It's not so critical in the 19th century. But as of the 1920s, as this rural culture is beginning to feel even more displaced, you get the rise of fundamentalist religion. So it really comes out of the 20s, and then just keeps growing and growing and growing. This is why, Dan, we when we try to compromise or meet Trump supporters on some sort of common ground, it never seems to work. Because we can never satisfy what they want. We can never turn America back into a, 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 a small town world. We can never uh, get rid of all the additional kinds of people and places. Uh, what they One study I saw was interesting is that the people who are afraid of uh, integration and stuff are usually the people living next to some place that's integrated, which there isn't a lot of problem. And... Uh, um, I remember uh, uh, because that is the example of what their community might become if they don't take action. So we, so what do we do if there? And I think many of us experience this. 
what can Democrats, progressives, ordinary human beings do? Just, there's not much we can do to compromise with them. I mean, uh, a whole lot of the policies of the Democratic Party would help these people immeasurably more than anything Trump will do mm-hmm. for them. But on, that doesn't seem to affect their belief system. That doesn't affect what they do. They they don't care that 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 all these Democratic programs, which I admit are a bit intellectual and wonkish, and that will actually improve their lives. They're not interested in those. They're interested in Trump. They're not interested in them because those those kinds of programs will undermine their basic belief system. Ah. Those are things that uh, basically turn their world into a sophisticated, cosmopolitan, modern world, which is what they, that's the last thing that they want. So I think, uh, you know, Hofstetter doesn't address that. Unfortunately, he died early. Maybe he would have if he had, he had lived. But I think probably the only answer is to beat them politically, to organize them, uh, to beat them demographically, which we're on our way to doing, and essentially uh, not to feel badly about that. Because Basically it... say they're wrong and we're right. Our values, in fact, are better than theirs. And therefore, uh, we should we should not be vindictive toward them. But at the same time, when it comes to the ballot box, uh, we should do everything we can to win again and again and again. Because otherwise, I mean, it is often like talking to um, a religious fundamentalist, Karen. It's like talking to somebody who is so engrossed in their belief system. That there's not, there's no handles. I, you know, originally yeah. when we used to argue with conservatives, we never maybe convinced them, but at least there were things that we agreed on enough to talk. Well, this is an e- emotional sort of feel, argument, not an intellectual one. So someone who feels that this is part of their being in their emotional life, this is not an intellectual discussion as to whether the tax rate should be five percent or ten percent. You know that they're that you. Well, but, and that's why yeah. facts don't matter. Dan, Karen, is that why facts don't matter to him? That that is interest politics. Yeah. And interest politics, he differentiates from status politics. And what these people are engaged in is status politics. Interest politics is how our political system has normally run. And you can always reach agreements on matters of interest by compromising. Status politics, you can too, and we all are part of status politics. You know, we have symbolic and emotional things that we want out of the political arena. But the point is, these people have taken status politics to extremes. I think that's so threatened, so deeply threatened that they've taken it to extremes. One thing to remember is that, by and large, they're newcomers to politics. Many of them have just gotten into it. And if we can defeat them, if we can whip them badly uh, at the polls, they will probably give up. They'll probably rethink things, too. I, I, we're running out of time, Dan. We've only got about a minute and a half left. and. Um, Dan is going to be on the show next week, and we'll be talking about 
these different uh, periods, the different regimes, Republican and, and Democrat, that take over for a long time. So you'll have uh, President Obama elected, but he's in an era where Republican ideas sort of dominate things. And you have someone like Johnson who's in a position where he can actually really do a lot of change, controls both both houses. So we'll be talking about this pattern in politics that exists. So when people are criticizing Biden, the old kind of Republican rules are not gone yet. The new progressive rules and ideas are infiltrating the country. So there's different there's a different approach, but it's not done yet. And so. As a president, uh, particularly, and we in looking at presidential politics with Dan, uh, you'll see this this pattern of uh, some presidents can make decisive things and others not. All right, we're out of time, folks. Tune in <laughs> next week. BVID.org. BVID.org. been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.